back to another episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. I am here with healer, podcaster, superhero, synchro mysticist, extraordinaire, Chance Garten. Chance, how you doing? Oh, like I said before we got on here, I'm just having having a great day. Spent all of it so far tuning up my body in different ways. And I feel amazing and ready to just kick back, relax, and enjoy whatever we get into today. It's going to be really fun. I've been looking forward to talking again since we had you on my show. And that was an amazing episode. And I had huge upgrades to my use of language from that that have carried forward. I love it. Uh, I've been hearing you say powers that were. And every time my heart gets so warm and sparkly and I'm like, it's spreading. We're doing it. (laughs) Yeah. And then the guide stones blew up. So I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Just enough repetition of these upgrades and everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, language, though, is that what we're going to talk about today? You have anything in mind? I have so many things in mind. I have a list. I came prepared. And since you mentioned the body stuff, I'm curious to know the highlights. Like, what is your meat suit maintenance routine? Like, what are those extra special pieces that are giving you the edge or helping to optimize you the mostest? That is a great question. So I'm I'm like, I'm an Aries sun. I noticed that I kind of am a little bit ahead of the sky clock. (laughs) So Mars just hit Taurus, if we're talking tropical, which I I kind of prefer. We don't have to get into the why. That's always a big, uh, you know, conversation that neither side can prove tropical or sidereal. But I'm uh, really deep in my Qigong practice again lately. Mm -hmm. So I had learned this lineage of Qigong is really amazing how I even like got exposed to it. But it was something that I kind of let slack for a while, even though it was a huge, important part of my awakening to energy and being able to communicate with my body and do a lot of the things that I'm able to do now. And uh, so Mars entering Taurus, that's like taking action, but at a slow and steady pace, a progressive sense that is for the body, for health, for physical resources, things like that. And I've been back on my Qigong game for about 10 days consecutively now. And this is something I actually did want to talk about. The other thing is lifting heavy weights. <laughs> God, don't skip legs day. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, maybe a bit obvious for a masculine or a fiery person like myself. But the Qigong is really important. I, I like actually slacked on that because I think the movements were not being done correctly. So I wasn't feeling the right benefit. And I went and revisited the book that is that I got by the person that I learned from and was just double checking the movements and making sure that I had them right. And so there are about 16 movements I do. 12 of them are specifically for the 12 major meridians. And when I reviewed the book, I realized, oh, wow, there's several things here that I wasn't doing exactly right. And So the reason why I felt like this was really an appropriate topic to bring up with you is because we're talking about languages with you all the time. (laughs) What is language? And uh, I really do infer that the body as a vessel and expression of universal ether, what people also call the Akashic record, it knows everything already. And the only thing between us and accessing that psychic awareness of whatever information that is possible to obtain to obtain it is the language that we're speaking to our body with and body needs different languages. So one of those languages being like uh, Qigong has turned into a really amazing 
energetic sensitivity for me when I'm doing my tunings for people. I've noticed this staying steady with it in consecutive days with it, that the way that I get communication from moving tuning forks around in somebody's energy field has gotten way more direct and obvious. Like, so when I'm doing the Qigong motions, whenever I, whenever something that is in me, like on a meridian channel is getting moved and the prime or the flow is getting primed, you know, priming the pump as Michael Wan says, uh, there's these feelings of like pressure shifts in the eardrums and snap crackle pops in different parts of the body particularly in the ears. And I, I noticed that after I'd been doing my movements correctly again, and then getting into people's energy fields that I didn't need to listen for tone changes as much in the forks. And instead I was getting these like ear pops and eardrum pressure shifts and things like that, that gave me a way more direct indication whenever I was moving through different densities of energy. And it was amazing. So when like, this is just one small operating system language, intellectual scaffolding framework, whatever you want to call it, that body can communicate to you what it knows and what it's picking up on. But if we don't practice and develop these different systems of communicating with self and with body, then we'll never be able to tap into the amazing immensity of the all-knowingness that we are an expression of. So I've been really excited about getting back onto that regularly and doing it correctly. And it feels appropriate for what's going on in the sky clock. So it's been great. I love all of that. There's so many pieces there for me. I'm Aquarius Sun, but I have Aries, Moon, Mars, Rising, Chiron in the first house. So I'm a pretty fiery girl. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's interesting because when we were, I'm just realizing now in Aries season, for me, it was like cardio and like multiple workouts a day. And, you know, with all my Aries in general, I need to work out hard every day. And I'm realizing since we went into Taurus season, it's more like, methodical it's more like nuanced it's more you know like today I did ballet and I'm I'm just more attuned to like how I'm holding everything um so it's interesting to relate it to the sky clock as you say I hadn't made that connection for myself totally totally and one of the things that I realized I was kind of doing wrong was rushing through the movements and that with something like qigong it's better to do fewer repetitions slower then more repetitions quickly, which is totally counterintuitive to it. <laughs> Aries son, go, 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 you know, uh, champion, do, do the most, do the fastest, but yeah. that's not really how more, more, more get the benefit. <laughs> and yeah, it's cool that Mars and Taurus like slowed me down on that a little bit. Although I guess for me, it started a little bit before Mars hit that exact zero degree point, but still it was a huge, obvious shift in everybody when that happened, like I heard, I heard people in my telegram group right on that day, seven, six, that they're like, Oh my God, my body feels like it's <laughs> totally just been beat the hell up or things like that. Like Mars aggressively hit their Taurus. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I'm not surprised that people in your telegram group are so tapped in and attuned to the body. I find it interesting that the shift in your tuning work, where it went from like an aural where you were listening to something you were more feeling in an embodied way, because that's my relationship with language is when I tune in to distortions, it's because I feel it in my body, like something kinks up or stutters. Right. And then it's for me, a lot of times I'll do it in the float tank and I just go deeper into the physical sensation to find my way to the just right upgrade. Oh, I totally admire that. I know people that have that same thing. 
you know, get, <laughs> get messages like, you know, in a, in a constructive way about how, oh, when this was said this way on your show, I felt this like, ugh, in my body in this way. <laughs> or whenever the laughter came, it felt really good. And that's amazing to be that in tune with body to get the messaging on a feeling level. And, you know, with the tuning, I'm still listening as well. I'm still doing the aural side of it. But a big part of the process was like, I would just know when I was in a spot that needed attention or that was like flagging me. Yeah. And that's great. And I have learned to trust myself that when I know, I just know and to just go with it because it consistently ends up being accurate. But it's more enjoyable on the practitioner side to have like, this is directly confirming that, you know, (laughs) you know, rather than sort of that wishy-washy Neptune obscurity of psychic mysteriousness. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I also have a healing practice and it's, it's just continually stepping into the mystery and the unknown. And it's like, okay, I mean, being invited to, you know, clear or help transmute this thing. I don't know what it is. I didn't know I was going to be asked to do this. Do I have what it takes? And it's just like this full trust and confidence for me as I move like deeper and deeper and deeper into unknown realms in service to other people's healing. Is that, I mean, is, is that what it's like for you? Well, for me, yeah, for me, like maybe it has to do with my Neptune placement, but a lot of the sort of psychic knowings that I get are not, I can't like draw a line from point A to point B and be like, this is why I know that. And <laughs> so it did take some acceptance to get to the point where I was like, okay, I trust myself completely that especially because in the process of doing a session for a client, I always make a sort of verbal contract with them, the higher self for them and for me, which is just like another way of saying universal ether or the, the all the Supreme being that we're all part of is in charge of the process, which means like, then I can surrender into the trust of knowing that I can't really do it wrong and they're not going to receive it the wrong way. And that we just eliminate the whole wrongness out of the equation completely because our intentions are going to be honored uh, as we go into something that wholesome and pure. And, and it's a lot of fun. How were you beckoned into the healing heart, healing arts? Like how did that happen for you? Oh man, it's been like a long process. Uh, The first thing that happened was, I one day at like a music festival somewhere, I picked up a big selenite crystal. Let me see. I think I'm going around here. Maybe not. I have this one. This is a selenite. I picked up a big selenite stick and like held it up to my head. And I felt this magnetic. It's hard to describe, but I felt like this energy in my head and anywhere that I put it around my body. And I was like, whoa, this is different. So for a while I was just like, walking around to friends and trying to show them, Hey, do you feel the energy off of this thing? (laughs) So the crystal itself, selenite really began to wake me up to energetic sensitivity Mm -hmm. and uh, playing around with that sort of in an untrained way had its pros and cons, including not really understanding the necessity of grounding or how to do that. (laughs) And I learned that the, the hard way, but had a great lesson given to me sort of like a freebie where somebody who was really sensitive noticed that I was carrying around a lot of ungrounded, absorbed other people's energy from what I'd been playing around with and helped me understand what I needed to do to fix that. And Mm -hmm. it was funny. Like I was walking down this 
lane and there was a bunch of tents and booths set up with people selling different stuff, artwork and crystals and whatever. And this lady called me over out of the crowd, a huge crowd of people. She's just like, you, 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 you just been walking. What have you been doing with that thing? You just walking around with that. And I had a big selenite wand <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, just, you know, using it on people, having fun with it. And she's like, stop, stop right there. Take your shoes off. <laughs> and she slapped some black tourmaline in my hands from her booth and had me take my shoes off. And she spoke this like blessing of connecting to the earth and had me visualize and, and all this. And what was amazing is I'd had been developing this very particular and peculiar pain in a certain area of my body in a sacral region. And I was kind of getting worried about it because it was getting more and more. And I was like, what is going on? Why is this happening? Too young for cancer or something. And I was getting scared, <laughs> but I wasn't, I hadn't told anybody about it. And she slapped these tourmalines in my hand. She had me ground with the earth and I felt that pain slide down my body, down through my legs and out my feet. And it was gone and it never came back. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> okay. So grounding. And I looked more into that and studied shamanism a bit. I was very early in the, the woo way, if you will, at that point in my like early mid twenties and found out the significance of energetic hygiene mm -hmm. and why that's probably as important or more important than taking actual physical showers. <laughs> uh, now, I mean, now it's like second nature. I feel like I've uh, developed a lifestyle where I'm pretty much always continually grounding and without needing to put a lot of extra effort into it. But every now and then I'll pass by one of my friends that happens to be a tree right now. And, you know, slap my arms around him and be like, hey, if I got any stuff, you want to help me out with this and just have a little moment. And I give thanks. And, and I haven't really developed any of those weird, quirky pains since then. But that was the beginning. And it, I mean, I could go further. Qigong was another step to getting a higher level of energetic sensitivity. Started playing around with Reiki once I learned about that and uh, had some like shamanic journey work experiences where guides and spiritual entities of a sort like did that whole psychic surgery thing, that shamanic dismemberment thing to me and reassembled me with actually selenite crystals in my astral body. And then from that point on, without needing the wands and the crystals on hand, I could generate internally the feeling of what selenite felt like at any time. And basically like do the same thing that you do clearing somebody with a wand like that. Cause the selenite is kind of like, Sage without the smoke mm -hmm. is a way that I put it. It's like a big light beacon. It's a freaking flashlight <laughs> made of crystal. They actually use it for fiber optics. That's where they got, that's where they got the technology for fiber optic cables. Those high speed data transmission cables that are like shooting light from point A to point B wicked fast that we use for ethernet and things like that. So I had these selenite crystals put like into my arms and this shamanic dismemberment and rebuilding experience and started doing Reiki. I never got like what you would call an attunement from any masters or I always, I felt weird about that. Like, cause I would, I would kind of sit in and watch from the outside, the circles of people doing that type of thing. And they'd say things like, okay, now we are implanting the thing into you. And I was like, I don't really want any implants unless they're given to me by my own guides and the way that I just described. So I never got any kind of professional attunement, but I don't think you need that. I, I think those type of things are just, uh, they give people an excuse for why it's okay for them to be magic. 
<laughs> and you know, if you, if you needed that, I'm not like knocking it. If that was a big deal for you and your path out there listening to get an attunement or to go through a course and all that, that is good. And there's definitely benefits to learning someone else's method. And they'll probably hopefully teach you the grounding thing that I had to learn in a roundabout way, kind of out of order, but that's always been my way is to just sort of figure it out on my own. And I, the Reiki thing was always amazing. I, like I was a huge music festival kid in my twenties, like constantly in the summers and the fall, going to those all the time. And I was known as the guy that if you were feeling sick or out of whack or you're having a bad trip, my friend groups would bring the individual to me and I would, you know, wave my hands around and make eye contact and bring them back. And, <laughs> and maybe they'd start purging and puking after I did what I did, or maybe they would just feel better. But I knew that there was something to it. Mm-hmm. And those experiences were really key to me developing as a, who I am, because from that point on, I was like, okay, there's more than just the physical here. It took me way longer to realize there isn't a difference between the spirit world and the physical world that we're in the spirit world. And we never left. And that division mentally is part of the primary control program that the uh, powers that were implanted in us. (laughs) Uh, So hello, everybody. Welcome to the spirit world. You're already there. (laughs) Nowhere nowhere to go. You're just continue to be here. It's great. Uh, so Qigong, I, I learned about that also through an experience with crystals where to like make the story shorter, uh, I had this stone that I had received in a very mystical way that was connected back to a sweat lodge that I'd done. And uh, a, there was actually like an entity in the stone, this really ancient spirit that was part of the the sweat lodge circle that had gone back to an artifact that the, the native elders that were doing these sweat lodges had uh, found an artifact on their land that was thousands of years old. That was a native American pipe, amazing like serpent shaped clay pipe. And it had like a spirit attached to it. And uh, I asked that thing to go into the stone that I had and it did. And we had a lot of fun carrying it around in my pocket. <laughs> and one day it, like I got this crazy urge to just hand it over to a stranger that I passed by. That was walking by and it was bizarre because I really had an attachment to this stone and I felt like I had a connection to like something, some being that was guiding me that was in the stone and I gave it up. I was like, Hey, I don't know you, but this stone is telling me I need to give it to you. And I need to tell you what's going on with this stone before you receive it. If you want it. (laughs) And I did all that. And she was like, wow, I feel like I need to tell you something. Have you ever heard of Qigong? I don't really know what it is, but for some reason, that's the message I'm getting in my head that you should look into Qigong. And I was like, uh, okay, cool. And because I had paid such a heavy cost to get that tip, I took it really seriously. And I went and found uh, online a teacher, wound up being the exact perfect teacher that I needed and went from there. But that really woke up the, the chi in my flow and improved the whole ability to do things like Reiki massively. And then quite a while later, and I hadn't even, I hadn't really even been practicing that stuff much anymore because of the opportunities were less common and frequent, more just for close friends and people in my life and not out and about doing like the rave shaman thing (laughs) that used to be my jam. Uh, And I came across the work of Eileen Day McCusick. She was on several podcasts that I enjoy and she has a biofield tuning store 
Mm-hmm. She's developed the biofield tuning methodology, which is a uh, basically based on a map and anatomy of the energy field of the human aura, you could say. And this anatomy was fascinating because it made perfect sense to me that certain types of emotional blockages, stagnant, stagnated chi or plasma, bioplasma, electricity, whatever, a lot of words that you can use that are somewhat synonymous in this talk, but not completely, uh, that for every individual, just like your spleen is on your left side right here, your, um, <laughs> your feeling of being under attack by other people's bad vibes and negative energy, that actually hangs out over here on the left, about the same height as your heart. And that these blockages have a depth to them based on your age, where some experience may have happened or some belief may have been formed mm-hmm. that caused this uh, pushing away and division of your energy field to keep a certain experience or feeling away from yourself, to arm yourself from it. And so if, say, for a 30-year-old, you found a blockage that was at the point of their sacral chakra on the uh, back area of their field off to the right, and it was maybe like three feet off their body. Well, the average energy field is about six feet off the body in every direction. So in this back right area of the sacral chakra would be three feet of depth would be like, okay, when you were 15, something happened to give you a strong rejection of pleasurable feelings in your body that you decided that, and that also ties into guilt. Like if it was more on the front, then it would be more like a guilt blockage. And oftentimes the front and the back, those things are connected and there's some in both areas, but you'll tell the client something like that. Like, okay, when you were about 15, what happened to make you like reject feeling good in your body and pleasurable feelings. They'll be like, Oh, that was when my parents sent me to Catholic school or (laughs) so it's amazingly consistent as consistent as human anatomy. Although it's not perfectly a hundred percent identical human being to human being. There's some intuition in the process to figure out, okay, what does it mean for them? And in the same sense, you know, I've often thought Maybe human anatomy isn't a hundred percent consistent from human to human. Like I've thought that quite a bit that, well, nature doesn't really work off of perfect exact templates. There's a lot of wiggle room and we don't tend to like crack open everybody that dies and measure everything to see where, what is. And so I don't know if there's really a hundred percent consistent human anatomy, but as a metaphor, it's like the anatomy of your body, <laughs> not to mention there's supposed Mandela effects that have changed our anatomy, which is. A total trip. <laughs> Can you give me an example of one of those? I, this is the first I'm hearing of this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember when I was a kid being shown diagrams and being told that your heart is not in the middle of your chest, but it's tilted to the left and it's on the left. Right. Okay. That was why you do right hand over your heart for Pledge of Allegiance. Well, guess what, Danny? Now, according to, I mean, I haven't looked inside my body, but according to human anatomy experts and any information you'll pull off the internet, your heart is exactly in the middle of your chest and it's just tilted to the left, but it's in the middle. Yeah. That's a shift. That's pretty weird, right? Totally. (laughs) But when you think about like on the symbolic level, if we all remember the heart being left in like basically imbalanced to the left and now it's moved to the middle, is that symbolic of human consciousness getting closer to a state of balance? I think it might be, I don't know. Some of the Mandela effects with, with the body feel more like upgrades. Like uh, I believe one of them is that the kidneys 
used to be lower and they're come, they've come up and they're more protected by the ribs than they were in our previous awareness of anatomy. So like, I don't know if there are Mandela effects to the human anatomy, the, the ones that I'm aware of seem like kind of improvements. So that's a plus. The one that I've noticed that I don't think is an improvement is that nipples have disappeared because, because now the only bras people buy have these like foam things that cover nipples. So it seems like part of the Mandela effect is that nipples no longer exist in this dimensional construct. I still have them. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen any smoothie Barbie doll <laughs> chests yet, but you mean just like, um, on the external apparent on the side. external I'm being silly, but it, it w- I wouldn't be surprised if in terms of like how the simulation is rewriting itself, if it wasn't like a step towards that. I hope not because <laughs> I don't want to put babies. I don't want to grow babies in incubator test tubes. No, same, same. <laughs> um, okay. So you were saying Mandela effect has shifted our understanding of human anatomy. Oh, yeah. And let me just back up a little bit. I found the work of Eileen Day McCusick. We're talking about my journey to doing Healy stuff. And uh, her books were so incredibly enlightening to the whole idea of a biofield anatomy. And she explained the way that she did. She used tuning forks to move the energy that is off balance and bring it back into circulation with the rest of the field by bringing it to the central channel of the, the middle column of the chakras. And I've talked about this at length and really explained the process many times, but to me, her work was so clear and so well written that without needing to go like take a course or get certified or anything, I was able to just attempt to do what it was she was describing. And I spent about a year practicing on friends in person uh, and getting the hang of things like the basics, like how to hit a fork. Well, you know, and uh, that seemed to be effective. People were enjoying what I was doing. And then I just decided, you know what, let's try this. Let's I think I'm ready to just start trying this for real. And at the beginning, I was offering pretty low priced try it out because I was wanting to practice, but also wanting to value what I knew was effective. And uh, since then, it's just been a continual journey of unlocking more and more understanding of the process. Like when I began, I'd be referencing the chart of the biofield anatomy constantly like, okay, what is this here? But now, now I just have that fully internalized. So I get more direct messages about what it means when I hit the static point with, without needing to think about it or try to like puzzle it out. Mm -hmm. And that allows for a bit more variance in understanding how that was unique to that individual. It's really cool to get in there and you, kind of find out the person's life story to a degree, a lot of the major beats of their life story. By and how are you doing that? Oh, uh, do it remotely, actually. But are you like, are you getting visual? Like, are you physically seeing like distortions in people's bioenergetic fields? So I don't see it, actually, because I'm doing these remotely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've set up a table and this table has... Kind of like imagine a voodoo doll, but for good. <laughs> That's okay. how someone described it to me. So I put out a ton of crystals, mostly selenite for the main bulk of the body. It's got legs, it's got arms, it's got uh, a spine, and the spine has crystals for each of the major chakras. And 
uh, candles for each of the chakras. I like to use candles too, because I feel like having that flame present invokes the, the flow and the energy of the ether in a powerful way. Mm-hmm. So I have this all symbolically laid out to represent their body and the forks operate, the forks react and operate as if their body is really there. In a lot of ways, the remote process is kind of superior to having them in person. They get to do it from the comfort of their home. You know, there's less on the front and back end. We just get in there. And so I don't see distortions per se, but I feel them. I hear them. Like you might hit a pocket where the fork runs out way faster than it should for the strength of how you hit it. Mm -hmm. Or you might hear the tone take a different different, uh, pitch. Mm-hmm. That sound and that sound of like, oh, this sounds kind of sad, or this sounds kind of scared, or this sounds kind of angry, or this sounds kind of muted. And a lot of that is intuitive. You just are feeling it out as you go. Mm-hmm. So there's many different dimensions on which the information can communicate itself to you. And then every once in a while, when you hit one of those spots, you get a really big sort of download and you'll like see a flat, or I'll like see a flash in my mind's eye of something or I'll feel something in my body. Like maybe I'll be in the throat chakra region and I'll hit an area where all of a sudden I get this like acid reflux feeling in my throat or, and sometimes in other parts of the body. And that gives me more context. And then they may also give me information like I'm feeling this in my body or I just, (laughs) one of the wildest things that happened was uh, in terms of visions that people see occasionally while I'm doing it was a guy I was in the heart chakra area and I was working on the region where, like I mentioned before, we take on sort of a sense of defensiveness against other people's negative energy, almost like we're victimized by their negative energy. And that has to do with our boundaries not being kind of correct. But uh, I was in that area and all of a sudden he's like, I'm seeing something weird. And I was like, okay, tell me, it's good to tell me that's part of moving the whole thing. And he said that he saw, <laughs> he said that he saw like a Medusa type head with a ball of snakes on the top. But each of the snakes had the face of somebody from his past that he felt traumatized by or that he thought had wronged him. I was like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> and uh, like metaphorically speaking, I kind of thought it reminded me of Alexander the Great cutting the Gordian knot mm-hmm. because I felt like I just sort of sliced through that whole thing the tuning fork sword. <laughs> that's powerful. I mean, that yeah. really speaks to the potency of the work you're doing. It's hard to underestimate. Honestly, it has a lot to do with what the, the client brings to like mm-hmm. the more they're doing work on themselves, the more self-awareness they've garnered, mm-hmm. the more effective it is. But on many levels, I believe that it's effective for anybody anytime. And as awesome as it is and as mystical and magical as it sounds, it's actually really simple. And it's a big, why I talk about this practically everywhere I go is because yeah, I'd love for people to come to me and let's work together and do this. I've got a lot of practice, but I think anybody could learn to do this. Mm-hmm. It is as mechanically consistent as any other, like <laughs> I call it like our being an aura mechanic. You know, if you learn how a car works, you can fix most cars. And I think anybody could learn how a car works. I don't really know how cars work that well. So maybe that's a bad example, but <laughs> there's nothing stopping anybody out there from learning how to do it. And, you know, as a practitioner, you get a big dose of the benefit yourself too. Like any form of shamanic style healing or soul retrieval, it only even works if the practitioner 
is aware of what's going on in themselves, you know, where the energy, if you, how I understand shamanic healing, shamanic energy work, how I've come to understand it is that as that person who's on that path, when you've sensed something, sense something that is stagnant or not flowing energetically in your environment in another person, you look for where, where inside yourself, the correlating area is Mm -hmm. and you prime the flow in that area for yourself and watch that watch the change that occurs out there Mm. that's how i understand it to work like when they say healer heal heal thyself well even if you've already done a ton of work on yourself and you're not blocked near this practitioner you still operate that way i think if in authenticity and what's beautiful about it is that because we are our bodies are expressions of made out of and containers of the universal ether, the all, that means that no matter how much work you've done to balance and energize and harmonize within, you're always able to continue doing more. There's no, it's, it's not a bad thing that there's no end to the process of, of healing and harmonization. Mm-hmm. It means that the further that you go with that for yourself, the more that you influence the all with that harmony. It's amazing. Yeah. Um... That that reminds me, and then I, I want to come back to your healing work, but I just had this realization this morning in meditation because, you know, I've had the experience of making so much progress in certain shadow areas of my life, and then, like, years later, it'll come back to a different degree or in a different way, and it's, like, constantly refining my relationship with these things and realizing, oh, we we evolve to, you know, like the peak of where we can evolve for the level or layer where we're at. I'm not trying to make it hierarchical at all. Right. Um, but then when we leap into another layer, we're still living in the same incarnative, you know, meat suit with the same cosmic blueprint and the same basic pieces that we've been invited to heal. So now it's like, okay, well now how do I come into right relationship with this thing on this dimension of consciousness? You know, that that was just a new piece that came in today in terms of like, we're never done integrating and harmonizing and rebalancing. Yeah. And I don't know why you would want to be. <laughs> if, we're, <laughs> if, we're, if we're expressions of the infinite, we exist within the infinite. It's infinite stairs. I like to call the metaphor of life to be like shoots and ladders. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, can cl- you can go up infinitely or you can slide down infinitely. Yeah. Sounds about right. Funny enough, when you slide all the way down to the bottom, sometimes you bust out the top. I think that's the whole Sabbatean strategy. Not for me, though. Okay, I'm going to sit with that one. So it sounds like you moved from you discovered selenite. um, So that, you know, that brought on certain powers, tapped you in in a certain way. You were the guy at festivals who was healing people with, you know, your hands, with eye contact, with intention. And then you found this new practice that moved you into a relationship with sound and vibration. So I'm wondering like how that has changed your ontological understanding of life in terms of now being in this working relationship with frequency, vibration and sound. Yeah. Well, that is part of what gave me the, one of the final, maybe one of the final insights of great importance, which is, that there is not a separation between the material world and the spirit world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the material is, is spirit. And, well, you know, I, I remember David Whitehead was asking me about like my thoughts of why, 
if there are controller type beings, if what has been going on in the world in terms of the sort of parasitic invasion has to do with some type of spiritual entities that are influencing or possessing human beings, why would they do that? You know, why would spiritual entities or beings have any reason to care about getting all the gold in the material world? Mm -hmm. But my understanding of that was like, well, why wouldn't they? This isn't, this is reality here. You know, if you got the physical gold, there is a spiritual aspect to that possession to that ownership or whatever. So Mm -hmm. um, the beautiful thing about this work that really helped me feel more at peace with life of the universe and everything was that it gave me a sense that division, separation, distance, all these are mental constructs. Mm -hmm. I won't call them illusions, but they exist mentally. Mm -hmm. They're psychic, they're psychic ideas. And so the fact that I can like wave to any forks around in my living room and somebody in Australia is laying down and they feel in their body tingles and sensations in the area that I'm playing the forks in. And I didn't even tell them where I was at because mm-hmm. they can't see me. And that I could be like, okay, uh, I can tell that you've had painful problems with your ankles your whole life and you're currently having bladder problems. And then they'll say, yeah, I've broke my ankles five times in my life. And I currently am having bladder problems. That is true. (laughs) You know, like that proves it, that it doesn't even matter that there's this physical distance between us that when we're doing this process, that the living ether itself is what we're working with here. And what, when I would talk about language to maybe articulate that a little more, the language that your body is able to communicate with, I believe what makes it such a powerful modality isn't that the tools themselves are necessary for us to express our intentions and project our intentions and create the wholeness we're uh, intending, but that because we're doing it, we're playing this game called tuning <laughs> and we're using this rule book called the biofield anatomy, which very well could be a completely imaginary construct. But through that construct, the body has a specific set of parameters that it can talk to you through. And be like, okay, well, if I want to express that this is what's going on, then I express it through you picking up information from this area of the field around their body, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So, you know, there's, it's basically like levels to it, holding your hands up to somebody and intending for them to receive a channel from universal source and from universal ether of healing and harmonizing potency. That's one level of a game. But there's not a lot of parameters to that game. That Mm -hmm. game is just holding my hands out or I'm therapeutic touch or whatever. But a more complex game is, and I like more complex games, more choice, more fun. Mm -hmm. A more complex game is biofield anatomy. Mm -hmm. That this over here means this and this over here means this. And it's very rewarding because we get to have those moments of aha, wow, mind blowing, sync, we're in sync. Uh, How did you know that? You know, it lets us really tap into a deeper level of our psychic knowing, which is always there, but it is not accessible unless we have some kind of operating system between our conscious mind and our body that already knows to tap into it. So to me, that's what's exciting. And in the grand scheme of infinity, it's actually still really simple. <laughs> and it gives me a lot of hope for further development of 
other forms of like, this is truly like a quantum language we're mm-hmm. talking about the biofield anatomy and, and using sound in it to get garner information about each other's bodies and our, our current condition and our, our history and things like that. So I wonder what's next, what level of complexity of a, a game and of a system of communicating with that source energy can we develop next to go even further into our all-knowingness. It's pretty awesome. Super awesome. Are you familiar with the gene keys? Yeah, yeah. I have a pretty, pretty strong familiarity with it. I'm a huge I Ching guy. That was one of the first woo things I ever got into. So gene keys has a lot to do with the I Ching. And as a way of getting more context on the I Ching, I've been pretty interested in them. Uh, wouldn't say I fully <laughs> grasp the whole system, but in terms of like, what the gene keys represent to different I Ching hexagrams. I have a pretty good working knowledge of that. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the gene keys book over on my bookshelf right there. Uh-huh. It's a big one. Um, because, because as you were speaking, I was thinking specifically of the 60th gene key, which moves from the shadow of limitation to the gift of realism to the city of justice. And that one's all about structure, right? And so in that book and according to that system, um, all that magic needs to do its thing in this realm is some sort of structure. And it doesn't really matter what structure it is. And we don't really need to get hung up or attached. We just need to give it a structure so that there's, there's like walls and rules to act, you know, so that we can interact with the magic and see it. Like we opened up the conversation where you were saying, you know, sidereal versus tropical. It doesn't matter for the people who are into sidereal, sidereal is the thing for the people who are into tropical, tropicals, the thing, you know, it's just as long as we don't get too attached and become too dogmatic about it, um, these structures can be super helpful in terms of us knowing ourselves and starting to work with these other like invisible forces, non-ordinary reality, getting to know them more and more. So we become more adept and then, as you say, evolve into more complex structures and means of working with them. I love that. You nailed it. That's how I feel about it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what language is meant to be. Completely, completely. I'm curious, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking of a conversation I once had with a mystic of like questionable devotion. And I wasn't really clear. I knew that he had a lot of power and it wasn't really clear, like, well, which side are you serving? And so my stock question is, well, are you serving light? And he said, well, light only presents itself as inversion in this realm. So light is satanic. I serve sound. And I'm curious to know as someone who works with sound and is familiar with inversions and all of that stuff, like, does that land? Does that have any resonance? Uh, Yes and no. My first thought is that, well, buddy, (laughs) what you're calling sound is light. (laughs) It's the same. Uh, It's light and sound and electricity and vibration. They're all part of, they're all vibration of ether, all perturbations of ether, the medium, which is the all, which is source. And at different rates of vibration, we experience it as sound or as light, but it's the same thing that's happening. It's vibration. So think of like when lightning flashes, but then you hear thunder later. Mm Mm-hmm. Are, is the thunder separate from the lightning just because they come at different rates of speed to your sense and to different parts of your senses? It's the same one thing that happened, right? Mm-hmm. 
So when he says light is inversion in this realm, there is the use of like what people would call the Luciferian in a Steiner sense aspect of light, a false light. Mm -hmm. And when we consider, (laughs) think of the word luxury, right? How many of our luxuries have to do with artificially generated light that actually that lux fucks with our ability to stay in a natural rhythm, right? The right. light coming off the screen, the the lights that block out the sun at night or the stars at night because of the light pollution. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> even think of the word in Gemini, you have Castor and Pollux, mm-hmm. Paul Lux. Pollux is one of the etymological roots of the word pollution. So back then they didn't have an idea of light pollution, but it's Paul Lux. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Writing this down. I have a word list handy. <laughs> oh yeah. You said that there's like, you're going to do deep dives on certain words. I'm glad yeah. to add more to your list. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so he's not wrong about that, but I don't believe that all light serves that function of mm-hmm. being Luciferian in the sense of a, a false light matrix, you could call it. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a connection to the idea of luxury and these aspects of light that are are inversions in a sense because there's light where naturally there wouldn't be, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. I wouldn't say all light is that. And I wouldn't make a separation or distinction between light and sound either because they're part of a spectrum that is the same phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So... In my my time on the planet, I've touched into different um, spiritual practices and modalities and ideologies and whatnot. And there's realms of myth. And you and I have talked about archetype, which I I do want to get into. And for me, I I have found it more aligned for me to just whittle everything down to frequency and vibration. Like that is the base fundamental. Um, architecture of everything. So instead of getting into or me getting distracted by the stories, the myths, the gods, the goddesses, this, the that, it's like, what's the frequency? What's the vibration? So for you as someone who's working with frequency and vibration on the regular, and, and then I know that you spoke about archetypes, the evolution of archetypes, I'm just kind of wondering your take on it. My take on frequency in general? Well, it feels to me like our, like there's one aspect of me that understands our world is made of stories, right? Like just like I was saying with tropical and sidereal astrology, we have a collective agreement. You know, a lot of people say the moon is a dead satellite. It's not even a real thing. Okay, but we enough people have bought into the story that long enough that we can see the effects that it has on our psyche and emotions, you know, whether that's real in and of itself or because it just this is our agreement but then you know it seems like that in a sense are these fictions that we're living into or agreeing to buy into and I feel like are we evolving out of story and mythology and moving into a realm that is just frequency that is just vibration and getting like more pure and leaving behind these older constructs it's a good question it's definitely worth pondering I don't know if, I don't know if that's what we're doing. (laughs) I think people can, people are choosing their own directions, right? So like think about the moon, the moon has so many stories attached to it. Mm -hmm. I kind of believe that part of the reason why there's all this, like the moon is fake stuff that goes on Mm -hmm. is 
maybe a, an instinctual sense or even like a well-researched understanding that what we've been told about what the moon is clearly misdescribes what is observable with our eyes mm-hmm. and definitely what is observable with more sensitive equipment. And I'm thinking of like Crow triple sevens lunar wave phenomenon. If okay. you're familiar with that. No. Can you fill me in? Oh yeah. Go look that up sometime. The lunar okay. wave. So Crow spent years just putting a telescope on the moon in high resolution and he is pointing it at the moon. Yeah. Okay. And he's not the only one after he put this out there, more people repeated the observation, mm-hmm. but it's not like you can tell when it's going to happen or why, but occasionally if you leave a camera on the moon close up in HD long enough, the moon does this like ripple across the edges. Mm-hmm. It, do you remember in a VCR tape how sometimes if the tracking was off, you'd get like this wave that would go up the screen and down it. It looks yep. like that. The moon does that. <laughs> yeah. You can't see it from, you know, with your naked eye because you have to be looking so close up at it. But yeah, the moon looks like it's some sort of a projection mm-hmm. more than a solid thing whenever you give it that level of observation. And who who really hasn't felt that about the moon before that it feels mm, soft or not solid or see through in a way? There's other people who seem to have observed that the moon, that you can see stuff behind the moon at certain times, which is also fascinating. So behind the moon as though the moon were like see-through. Yeah. Like it's not fully solid. It's transparent. Interesting. Or maybe a projection. Or maybe a projection. So I don't claim to know what it is, but I also don't want to throw out there and be like, it's artificial. It's fake. It's part of the control matrix or whatever, because. Every, like you said, it is, everything is story foundationally. I think the first and most important and probably deep down the only form of warfare that exists is worldview warfare. There's actually a word for that. I was just going to say, did you coin that phrase, worldview warfare? No, there, it's an actual phrase. I'm sure I heard somewhere, but in, in German, it's called Weltanschauungskrieg. Mm-hmm. Or Weltanschauungskrieg. I when don't know. was, I don't when was this idea originated of worldview warfare? That's so resonant. You know, I don't know. I think that <laughs> I don't know where the origins of that is, to be honest. But I do think that conceptually it makes perfect sense before anybody is ever going to go off to an actual war and fight with each other. They're going to need to have their worldview poisoned to believe that that's necessary or even possible to do. Yeah. And it might sound pretty out there, but like, you know, we, we swim in some pretty uh, heavy, deep end waters of looking into conspiracy and, and the darkness and all that. And there's many people that when they get into this information, uh, different type, different aspects of it, they're reluctant to share or even come out of the closet, so to speak, or they're afraid that someone's tracking them or, you know, you could, me and Emily Moyer had a really good conversation about this, the, Hanopt electric frequency fence, <laughs> you know, the, the watchers, what are the watchers? Mm-hmm. They've existed mythologically for eternity. There's the idea now of the digital watchers of the fact that we're being surveilled in every way, left, right, and center. And to me, like that's deep down, it's a fear that human beings have of um, being fully responsible for their own behavior, fully aware of themselves that, you know, like, we create this idea of external watchers 
and those things recording our actions and behaviors and Santa Claus putting us on the naughty list and checking it twice or whatever, because deep down, we know that no matter what, we have no privacy, Mm -hmm. actually, because you can never hide from yourself what you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know, and what is that self? That self is un, as unknowable and vast and infinite as the infinite. That self is the part of you that is a universal ether, or the Akashic record. So, you know, maybe oversimplifying it, but I'm sure people out there kind of catching my drift that no matter what you do, you're the one, you see it, and thus universe saw it. And so there's really no privacy from what people call God, and thus the fear of watchers when we've been instilled with this belief of like original sin and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm kind of shedding beliefs into things like sin and karma and all that. Not that I don't think that there's sort of a natural law or cosmic law relating to right action and wrong action, but more that we don't need this belief in karma generating possible tangles for us in future existences beyond this one just because we feel guilty about something that we did wrong <laughs> in this, mm-hmm. in this life when true, the true wrath of God, so to speak is evident in what occurs as you do the wrong thing that whenever you act out of alignment with nature, it is its own consequence. You know, your health suffers, you get weaker. Mm-hmm. The, I think it was Owen Benjamin who said some, some variation of this, like a definition of sin would be anything that makes you weaker. Mm-hmm. Man, I, I love that. So trying to round about to the original question. What was it? Because I know I have more on that. <laughs> it was archetype and vibration and okay. these different worlds. And story. Yeah, and story. And, and story. So uh, I, I don't know if we're going to move away from story ever, but maybe take more of an authorship role of the story. Because like we're talking about with having this intellectual scaffolding for us to ascend upon in our ability to practice harmonizing and healing arts, you know, the difference between just sticking out your hand and trying to channel Reiki energy versus the biofield anatomy and having very specific data to play with and and parameters and variables. And I believe that's what language is. And as you study language more deeply, you realize language itself encodes a bigger story. And that is the archetypes that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Those are like, if there was one way to really get a handle on what this is and where we are, it would be to fully crack the code in the language, uh, the metaphor and the matrix of the glyphs coming down the screen. And I see a blonde, I see a brunette, whatever. Awesome metaphor. Because you can pull stories out of language that become universal stories. Now, mm-hmm. the question is, if we get a better handle on cracking that code to the matrix, so to speak. When? when? as we get a better handle on it i'll say yeah because it's a continual process i don't think there's there's an end to it the question for me is like well i've observed that not only do the archetypes influence us on a psychological level and in our external lives and simultaneously that as our as we comprehend archetypes more fully or alter our perspective on archetypes the way they show up in the world and psychologically also changes. So to me, I believe I'm witnessing that we influence archetype as much as archetype influences us. Mm-hmm. It's a Ouroboros thing. Mm-hmm. So if and as and when we continue to crack the code to the matrix of language, to me, I think that it's not that story will go away, 
but that story will be more authoritative about the story. Mm. And who knows, like, because if, if what we're talking about with uh, biofield anatomy as a, a language construct that lets us play, explore and play a more complex game in the healing arts, that's more fun and more effective. Well, I look at the Zodiac, man. Uh, I've been wondering a long time, is the Zodiac what it is because that's just how it is and that's what the archetypes are? Or is it because we're, we see these expressions of the Zodiac in our lives and in the world because that's the commonly held belief and story about what it means. Mm-hmm. And I, my, my current place where I'm seeing with it is like a yes and not either or that there's some elements to what make, what makes anything useful about something such as the Zodiac and the sky clock is how it adheres to natural cycles, which are there. So it's kind of like the question of, determinism versus free will mm-hmm. can't there be both <laughs> you know can't there be some some element of both at play and i think the both at play is that there's a particular cycle that life takes whenever it's in an ideal progression and maybe at the base level we can boil that down to the idea of the trinity mm-hmm. you know mother father child mm-hmm. that even shows up in number in the form of how every every third number actually reduces back to a one mm-hmm. oddly enough. So like I, I use this example a lot, but to give it really quickly, if you add the digits between one and four, it equals 10, which reduces to a one. Mm-hmm. If you add the digits between one and seven, it reduces to, it becomes a 28, which is a 10, thus a one. Mm-hmm. You do the same, obviously 10 is a 10, but even if you add the digits between one and 10, it's 55, which becomes a 10 or thus a one. Mm-hmm. 13 does the same thing. Uh, so, and it goes on forever ad infinitum. So when we're counting in a way, we're actually always just saying one, two, three, mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole number line is one, two, three. It's like one, two, three, one, four, uh, five, six, one, eight, nine, one, 11, 12, one, 15, 16. It's pretty amazing. It's like, I call it the regenerating Trinity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm really into three, six, nine and how that plays out in, special number patterns like solfeggio and that's the solfeggio numbers are what I use for the tuning forks. And as I played with those and use those with clients, I got more and more downloads about why they're effective and what makes them so resonant and coherent. But so that's part of how the language of, so the language that we have that gives us our stories, one of the things that reduces down to at the most basic level is number. <laughs> 